This is a FUBAR Radio podcast. For more information, go to FUBARradio.com. The floor is yours on FUBAR Radio. That important decisions should not be taken except by a majority. That is the proper way in which to proceed. We put forward our proposals, which are to ensure there is a customs union with the European Union, that there is access to those markets, and above all, there's protections of our standards of consumer, environmental, and of course, workers' rights. I suspect she's not very genuine about having a customs union. She's not very genuine about being in a dynamic relationship with a new kind of single market. How on earth can we be proposing now to delay Brexit again when the country wants more than anything else in the world? is for politicians in Westminster not to focus uh, on themselves, but to focus on the needs of the country. The needs of the country now are our number one to get Brexit done. I think Theresa May is doing a better job of dividing her own party than of dividing the Labour Party. Yes, there is a deal to be found. We can get this over the line if she commits, as she should, to put this back to the British people for a confirmatory vote. And that's how we bring this country together. It's obviously not optimal to have any extension at all. And uh, we have a plan to leave the EU and deliver on the referendum result, which we put before Parliament a number of times. We can and must find the compromises that will deliver what the British people voted for. Hello. Yes, you may have already guessed. I'm not Femi. I'm Pfizer. Uh, Femi is out fighting Brexit somewhere in his blue T-shirt, I'm sure. Uh, And you are, I'm here with you today. So I'm Pfizer Shaheen. I'm the director of a think tank called CLASS, the Centre for Labour and Social Studies. And I'm also a Labour candidate fighting Ian Duncan Smith in Chinkford and Woodford Green. Welcome back to the show. And I am really excited to be presenting this this week and really to talk about this theme of what we do to fix our political system. Every day we are hearing more and more about the drama of Brexit, the drama in the House of Commons. But I think there's a much bigger point to be made here about how we address a broken system Um, and you would have seen this week that not only do we have uh, ministers resigning and Nick Bowles resigning and others saying that they're unhappy with their party policy on Brexit but we also had a leak in the House of Commons which for many summed up symbolically that Parliament is broken. So we are going to be talking today to Clive Lewis, uh, who's a Labour MP who's been there since 2015, about his experiences. We'll be talking to Shamir, Sunny, Catherine Meyer. We're going to really just try to break down what is wrong and what we can do going forward. Um, I have this job every week where I go out and I knock on the doors uh, of local people in Chinkford and Woodford Green. And it's just so clear that people are fed up. They're fed up of the system and they seem very fed up of politicians too. And, you know, there's part of me that can't blame them for that. So how do we go forward? Um, And there's this great article that you may have seen in the last week from Gary Young called We're Led by a Party Not Fit for Power in a System Not Fit for purpose in The Guardian. Um, I'm just going to read you one quote from that and then we're going to go to a guest. Um, So, we need electoral reform, he says. The referendums nobody's talking about that could have 
obviated. Both Brexit and the stasis that has allowed was the 2011 vote that rejected the alternative vote system. It is thanks to the first past the post system that with 37% of the vote, Cameron was able to inflict the Tory psychodrama of Brexit on the rest of the country. It is why today the numbers in Parliament aren't there and we keep counting the votes in the wrong way. And so really what Gary is getting to is maybe the issue isn't so much about Labour and the Conservatives and more about the broader system in which the way the Parliament is working. So I am going to speak to Clive Lewis now um, and I'd be really interested, Clive, in you speaking about your experiences in Parliament and whether you think if it's Brexit that's broken Parliament or if it's a bigger (laughs) problem than that. That was seamless, can I just say. Seamless coming into this conversation, very, very <laughs> professional. Um, is is I, so? I, personally, do I think Brexit's caused what's happening? No, I, I don't think so. I think Brexit's a symptom of a wider malaise that's happening. I mean, whether you look at it from a kind of social and economic perspective, you know, you, you know the work of people like Thomas Piketty and others who've looked at the more unequal society is, the less stable it is, the more disruptive. Uh, it is, uh, or you can go to the actual democracy itself. I mean, we've got a democratic system, a voting system that's probably fit just for about the 19th century, let alone the 21st century. Um, but it goes to more than just the voting system. I mean, it goes to being one of the most centralised states in Western Europe. I mean, people feel disempowered. They don't have rights of work in the way that they really should do in a modern economy. So there are so many, I think Brexit is a function of so many other things that are going wrong within our economy in our society and it really does I think show we need a radical reboot a kind of radical overhaul of how our democracy works and who it works for um, and that, that goes not just in terms of parliament but it goes in terms of the BBC you know we should be seeing that far more democratised, it's, it's a massive state, massive institution in this country and yet I think many people whether you're on the left or the right would say that it seems to be failing and failing quite badly in what it's meant to be doing um, our media Again, you know, that's meant to be the so-called fourth estate. It's meant to inform people about, give them, give them the ability to make informed decisions within democracy. And yet we have one of the most, I would say, um, polarized uh, corporate news, you know, modern yeah. news systems in the Western world. So there's so much that needs to be done. And, you know, I'm not saying this as a left-wing person saying I want to see a more kind of left-wing media or something which is just necessarily going to benefit the left. I want something which is going to create a healthier, more resilient democracy. And at the moment, we just don't seem to have that in the quantities that we need. Yeah, so I completely agree with you that democracy isn't just about parliament. I mean, that's part of the problem, right? But I guess if we were to focus in on parliament, I mean, you're not the mm. typical type of person that ends up in parliament, right? I mean, tell us no. a bit about your experience, you know, being one of the handful of black men in Parliament, not from a yeah. posh background, didn't go to private school. Tell no, us about that experience, because no. I think one big issue that comes up again and again is really the lack of representation, the lack of voice for working class communities. Yeah, I mean, so as a working class person, someone so the first in my family to go to university, brought up on a council estate, my parents worked in a factory. Um, my dad eventually became a trade union official. Uh, that that ultimately gives you a background which is quite rare inside Parliament. So, it, I mean, if you go to, I mean, people often describe Parliament when I got there. It was 
the best description was like kind of Hogwarts on speed. I think was the, the term someone described it to me. It's it's an extremely bizarre uh, kind of historical in some ways, traditional, very much class ridden place. It's about mm-hmm. social networks. About it's also about who you know as as opposed to just what you know. Um, so my experience of Parliament. Look, I won't be. I won't. I won't sit here and say it's all been bad. It hasn't. It's an extreme. It's, an, it's a really big privilege to be a member of Parliament. But at the same time, I would say, as a working class person and as a black man, you don't always feel that you're in a system which necessarily takes your best, has your best interest at heart, or one that is as welcoming and integrationist as it could be. So, I mean, look, it's easy to go in and say, you know, it could be better. Uh, woe is me, you know, you go in there and you fight for that change. But I think most people looking at the institution of Parliament can see that it has made strides, perhaps in terms of numbers of uh, black and ethnic minorities being represented. It's still underrepresented, but it's made some strides. In women, it's definitely made strides, but there's more still to go. But it's not women, just about right? numbers, is it? That's the thing. Yeah. You don't just get people in. It's the positions of power that people hold. Uh, it's the positions of influence. Um, and I think that's really important. But you know, look, there's another, there's another kind of intersectionality here I mean, we you know Sajid Javid could become the next um, conservative leader possibly prime minister so they would have had two women uh, as uh, prime ministers and the first black person as a prime minister potentially let's just say hypothetically does that mean that's going to change the lives of people like me and others in my community here in Norwich for the better no it doesn't because there is the issue of your class where you're from what your politics are in whose interest you're governing. And, and that's intersectionality, which makes it so complicated. It's not just a matter of seeing more women, more black people, yeah. more uh, in Parliament, you, more people with disabilities. You've also got to have that other dimension, which is who's, in whose interest you go into Parliament for and fight for. Yeah, so I think this brings us to the point. So it's not just about, you know, box ticking for some representation exercise, because obviously it's about the values of people coming in. That's but right. within the first-past-the-post system... Right. You, the Tories can, if they did have a majority, they'd be able to do whatever they wanted to do. What, what has your experience been of power when you are in the opposition? Like, how much is there that you can really do? And, you know, what is your thinking? I know in the past you've spoken about a progressive alliance. What, you know, how do you think the dynamics of parliament needs to change in that respect? So the voting system is clearly one way in which that needs to change, because I think one of the things about Brexit at the moment that we're seeing is this winner take all mentality that Theresa May, has, the Theresa May and the Conservative Party have definitely uh, had. If you look at the reason that it hasn't been able to um, take place is in large part due to the 2017 election, in which you know, lots of people interpret the outcome in many different ways, i.e. as a return to two-party politics. But actually what we saw was we saw, especially on the, the kind of non-Tory vote, the kind of the more the kind of the progressive vote, if you want, from you know, Liberal Democrat voters, Green voters, Labour voters, Plaid voters, SNP voters. You saw, particularly in England, you saw um, that those, many of those people voted in a way to kind of stop the Conservatives. So they voted for Labour or whoever the candidate was best placed to stop the Tories. And what that has done is that dented or blunted the winner-takes-all mentality that Theresa May or not the mentality, but it's definitely dented her ability to be able to take the usual winner-takes-all because we had a hung parliament. And that's kind of reflected in how 
Brexit has come to a standstill, basically because of her divided party and because she doesn't have an overall majority. That means that she's not been able to take the decision of the, four, of the 52%, the outcome of the last referendum, and drive it through as she and her party wanted. Uh, and so you can see, actually, if you actually want to have a politics where you actually have consensus-based decision-making, then our first-past-the-post political system, I think, is part of the problem. Uh, it's not about finding consensus. It's about one side winning by potentially a small majority and then doing whatever it is that they want to do. Now, that works for both left and for right. And just if you look at the constant, it doesn't necessarily mean just because you have proportional representation uh, that you're going to have better outcomes. But I do think when people look at how our politics is operating and how it's come to a standstill, I think there's an understanding that people really want politicians and politics to be able to build consensus on, on more issues. And with our kind of divisive political system, that proves extremely difficult. And that's one of the reasons we're having the problems we are. OK, yeah. Um, in terms of what needs to change then. So obviously we are stuck in this Brexit quagmire right now. Um, you know, where do we go from here for the, for the people that tell me, and I'm sure tell you as well, that they feel completely disillusioned with the system. How do we start yeah. showing them that we are going to change things for the better? So I think, I think you know, obviously committing to kind of radical democratic overhaul, including the voting system, would be something for the Labour Party, which is, meant, which is traditionally a, a radical transforming party, would be a good start. Um, I think, secondly, allowing people, the public, um, the various regions and nations of the country to have a say in what uh, stopping the, the kind of decentralizing local government would also play a part in that. I think, I think the other part of it as well is also understanding that specific ideologies can get you so far, but I, I would want to see political parties, and I as well, begin to look at a value-based kind of economic narrative and working with other political parties that share our values. There are lots of voters who don't have, especially as you move into the 21st century, they don't have the same, the same tribal instinct that perhaps our parents and grandparents had when we had the two-party political system. And I think it's becoming more fragmented, not just on the left, but on the right of politics. And, and yet we're trying to fit this fragmentation into the 20th century two-party political system. So I think actually... It's about how do politicians with similar values begin to work together. And there's a, real import, there's, a real, there's a real urgency to this because one of the pieces of the work that I work on quite a lot now is on the issue of climate change, biodiversity loss and other planetary boundaries. And how do we make sure that we have an economy and a democracy that is resilient to the shocks that are going to hit us in the 21st century uh, without kind of falling apart? And I think if politicians can't begin to work together to be able to face up to some of the existential threats that are facing not just our economy, but our, you know, our entire ecosystem, our democracies, because that will put pressure on them, then the 21st century is looking very bleak. So I actually think the future is about building alliances with other politicians who may not share every single piece of ideology that you do, but who basically understand on the, on the broad principles and values that you hold that there is work that we can do together. That's, I think, growing up politics, and I think it's what the public want, instead of us being set in a very narrow, tribal, kind of head-banging uh, way that, we, that politics so often does. And that doesn't mean that I'm going to get into bed with people who have values different to mine. I, I see very little eye-to-eye -eye with, with most conservatives because their value system is, in so many ways, the way they want to organize the economy, the way they're prepared to have inequality 
um, at such levels within our society. Those are things that I can't square away, but there are lots of other people on the kind of the centre and centre-left of politics that I do have things in common with, and I want to find out what more we can do to work together to ensure that we can impose our values uh, or make sure that our cons- consensus for our values is one that is out there. And I think the British public is probably more in tune with those values than it is with the values of the Conservative Party, in my humble opinion, but that's, I would say that, but I'm in the Labour Party. <laughs> Yeah, you would say that and I would say that too. But I mean, one thing is obviously Brexit has really has really dominated the discourse and where people may agree on public services or climate investment, um, they may be, you know, more on the side of maybe the hard Brexiteers. So it's it's been very difficult to have that conversation because... It has, it has. I mean, but look, the problem with Brexit is it's a binary choice and <laughs> the world doesn't always fit into a binary choice. There are often shades of grey and and variations in between. But the question being asked is, you know, do you think that you can have a, a more progressive, open, tolerant future either inside the EU or outside of it? And, you know, I'm quite clear it's going to be a lot more difficult outside of it, especially given those those forces and the people whose values that are driving Brexit. Now, that's not to say that everyone that wants Brexit necessarily shares the values of Jacob Rees-Mogg or Boris Johnson, not saying that, but because given their power and stature and influence within our society and within politics at the moment, and given that they're the people driving this, then it's their values which I'm afraid will quite possibly influence leaving the EU and where we head off afterwards. And and that is, of course, of great concern to many people in this country for whom Brexit has become uh, an emotional, visceral identity issue as opposed to just a simple economic political issue. Yeah, so much to change, Clive, um, from the political system to some of the ugliness that has come upon us from that Pandora's box of Brexit. Thank you so much for speaking to us. And it, it does make me, me feel, it does make me feel, give me some hope. I'm not you're there you and you're going to change things. <laughs> I'm not sure if I did that. Yes, a lot of work, a lot of work to be done. Thank you, Clive. Brilliant. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Fubar Radio presents... I'm joined by the lovely girly. So my DJ booth for my hype girl is a massive sanitary towel box. Amazing. That says girly for a less stressful period. It's like a rip-off of body form, so I hope they don't come for me. Um, <laughs> and, you know, like, we've I've had gigs where we've hung 500 tampons from the ceiling and stuff. A lot of the time, I think there's a misconception that I'm trying to shock, and I'm not. I'm trying to make something that's taboo, not taboo anymore. You know, like, why are people so awkward about talking about periods? Or why, you know, because it happens to, like, half the world every month. I think it's important to open up the conversation about those things. Every Thursday, Harriet Rose from 4pm, FUBAR Radio. She was supposed to have brought the vote on December the 11th, pulled it, put it at the end of January and lost by the largest ever majority. A government was defeated in parliamentary history, brought it back again, then again, and is now going to apparently try it again next week. This is beyond ridiculous. There is a clear proposal there that we negotiate a customs union with Europe which will then protect the whole issue of the border in Northern Ireland that we negotiate trade access and above all a dynamic protection of rights so we don't fall below Europe on it because I suspect there's a whole agenda there in the Tory party which would want to see workers rights and consumer rights and environmental protections diminished we'll put our proposals again to Parliament next week This is a very dangerous period because if we crash out without a deal, then the supply chains get interrupted, jobs are at stake, and also 
the sense of security of many European Union nationals living in Britain and of course British people living across Europe but we have been reaching out a lot indeed I had a very good discussion with the government of Spain to ensure protection of British nationals living there so we're back and there you hear again about some possibilities of moving forward but it just seems very difficult within the political system and that's why we've been stuck going round and round in circles in Brexit for what seems like an eternity now. Um, I'm very lucky now, I'm very excited to have um, Shamir Sunny and Catherine Mayer join us. Um, Shamir is the now quite famous whistleblower on the Vote Leave campaign and um, enormously thankful for the work you've done um, and your bravery. Thank you. Uh, And um, you do lots of other things now and are quite prominent activists. Um, And Catherine, you're the co-founder of the Women's Equality Party. Uh, So it's great to have you both with us. Just an initial question. How do you both feel about our political system? <laughs> Start with you, Catherine. Go on. Um, well, the reason I laughed is um, I think that the one thing you could find consensus in pretty much anywhere you went to these days is that the political system is completely and utterly messed up and it is not serving anybody properly. And um, But I, I'd like to actually take the chance to echo your words of welcome to Shamir because I think he did something amazing. Oh, and you. he did something amazing in showing the mechanisms that are that are messed up um which is i guess one of the things we're going to talk about today yeah Yeah, exactly so when we talk about our political system being messed up um you know it's kind of in every level we spoke to clive about lack of representation he also spoke about this centralized power first past the post system Mm -hmm. but there's also shamir in, in terms of what you found with this dark underbelly of the way the money works yeah. in our electoral system. So I, I, I think this, the current political situation is just a, a sort of a kind of minor climax of decades of, of, of just inherent corruption within the institutions that Britain has. And I think it, it, whether it's, you look at it in terms of racism, whether you look at it in terms of uh, sort of the sort of whims and desires of billionaires, it, there's this network I think through my whistleblowing, somehow, I didn't ever expect it to get to the point where I was uncovering the entire right wing (laughs) establishment. You know, when I first whistleblew, it was just like a couple of people broke the law. And then now it's sort of over through lawsuits and and conversations and my own like uncovering of what I experienced. I've sort of just brought to light what has been wrong with Britain for a long, long time. And it's quite scary because you were willing to call it out. But think about how many years and how many people with that proximity of power, knowing what power can do, Mm. you know, in the way that they treated you, of course. um, It's scary. So we don't know the half of it. Probably not even 10% of it, right? No, I don't think so. Did you want to come in on that? Well, yeah, I mean, that's also why I use the word mechanism, because um, Shamir's talking about corruption, and there's definitely corruption that he uncovered. But it's also about mechanisms. We're living with the um, outcomes both globally because there's some huge global trends involved in what we're seeing um, and also locally of systems that are outdated and were built to do certain things that they can no longer cope with doing in any way were not good things so you know you were talking to Clive Lewis just now about Um, the voting system, for example, that was the first past the post system was devised in order to create stability. 
And um, <laughs> stability, of course, is lovely if you're in the right place in stability. It was never good for all the people on the wrong side of the stability. It was always actually exclusionary. But now what we've got is this kind of convulsive reaction against a system that is absolutely sclerotic. It's old-fashioned, and it can't deal with the digital realities, yeah, which is, again, mm. it's, it's archaic. And, and again, what, what Shamir was... Was hoping was helping to show is a set of electoral laws and a set of systems that are totally um, unfit for purpose yeah. in the modern world. Mm-hmm. Do you want to say a bit? So it wasn't just it was almost like what came out about the money, but it also came out about the Cambridge Data. Analytica yeah. and all of that connection that just sort of sprung to light because yeah. of some of what you found and what others were working on at the same time. Yeah, I think. Um, so just for anyone that's listening that doesn't sort of have an understanding of what went on in terms of when Vote Leave broke the law, they used a company. They, the reason they broke the law was so that they could give more money to a specific company called Aggregate IQ, which was an offshoot, com- the Canadian equivalent of Cambridge Analytica, a sister company, so to speak. And so what AIQ did was they pooled m- data points from millions of people and used that to understand what made people upset and what made people angry and what got people to actually react um, to uh, political uh, slogans or messaging. And I think that's sort of imperative in this day and age, even with Trump uh, and with Brexit. It's, uh, this is just the first um, example of how disinformation and uh, data of people is used to manipulate, uh, disinform, or even... Um, c- c- even um, sort of disengage voters Mm -hmm. from actually participating within um, politics and in elections. So I think it's, the whole current political situation is what happens when you don't have systems and mechanisms in place that take into account electoral law, that oversee electoral law or um, update data privacy laws and, and online targeting and political campaigns. That understand even how any of this works. So for example, one of the things that happened in the Brexit campaign, but is still happening and happens everywhere, is that uh, because of the possibility of targeting um, using behavioural um, uh, understanding of the people online to, to target them with the messaging to which they are thought to be susceptible, they're only actually being sh- they're only showing adverts to to the people they think are exactly. going to be susceptible. Right. So we're not all seeing, no. e- whether it's misinformation or real information, we're not all seeing the same no. thing. So that's <laughs> immensely polarising. But it's also that there was a load of outright lies that were shown directly to people who may possibly have been susceptible to them because yeah. that's why they were selected to be shown those ads. Mm. I mean, we could get into the whole conversation about the fact that, you know, you can call those things lies and unfortunately people have made an emotional connection with it. Yeah. So, you know, and, it, and people don't like that because it's like saying that they're stupid, they couldn't see through yeah. those lies. So, it's a, you know, it's, it's actually quite a difficult conversation. And whilst it's factual that that did happen, yeah. just in terms of, you know, you're one of the people that is calling for another referendum, um, like m- many, um, I always worry, though, that couldn't the same thing happen again? What's different now? What have you seen change? Or has anything changed to prevent what you saw happening again? And we can't rely on people like mm. you to call it out. And the problem is, right, it's post. You yeah. called it out afterwards and the result was already there. Yeah. And actually, they haven't gotten in as much trouble as you would hope. Yeah, which is why, <laughs> well, well, precisely, well, which is why I've sort of, along the calls for a second referendum, the first thing I ever said 
in terms of action was a full public inquiry and a full investigation. It would, it's only through and the sort of lack of effort from both sides, whether that's Labour or the Conservatives, there has been this active sort of avoidance of actually approaching what happened during the Brexit referendum cheating. Because if we had immediately had a public inquiry, we would at least gotten somewhere where parliamentarians would understand the severity of the situation and take an action in terms of... Why do you think that hasn't happened? I think it's a number of factors. One, I, I mean, it's a plethora of factors, to be honest. One is that people were, weren't sure what was happening in terms of this, the revelations that I made with, with vote leave cheating. Mm -hmm. um, two, um, the media played an integral role in actually disinforming the public about it, particularly the BBC. And because I can say this because we went to the B we went to BBC Panorama first with the information about Cambridge Analytica and Vote Leave. And BBC Panorama was like, all right, this is amazing. Let's do it. And then a week later, when they took it to the higher ups, it, we were immediately shut down. Right. And even when I came forward, they gave a platform to several Vote Leave staff members and MPs. And I mean, you were there on my yeah. first my first ever interview on the BBC <laughs> on the BBC with Daily Politics. You were excellent. Yeah. Well, well actually, actually, that was in the summer. And my, the first interview I did was when I broke the story in March. And the way that they shut it down, I've never felt so vulnerable. Like, I was outed, like, a week, two days before that. And even that didn't make me feel as vulnerable as how the media in this country just shut that story down. I mean, isn't it... I just think about your story, and we sort of share a heritage. My mum was from Pakistan. You right. were born in Pakistan. Um, you know, and you think about the... Essentially, the corruption that you found and also the way in which power is able to infiltrate our media mm -hmm. and shut people like you down from having those conversations and um, you know it just feel like people think that we don't have corruption here but what you found is you know uh, pakistan is infamous for its corruption yeah but it's this is what corruption. i said right is that pakistan like i grew up in karachi pakistan one of sometimes referred to as one of the most dangerous cities not in terms of murder but in terms of corruption in terms of kidnappings uh, political sort of uh, violence uh, tribal violence all rooted within the political system where people are bought for their votes etc and so i come from a society where corruption within politics is the norm and for me to come here to the uk and to feel like it's even more worse here because we have this and I think it's more worse here purely because the British public have this severe cognitive dissonance to the realities of the British political system and how it works. So and you must have been shocked. Yeah, it was pretty... I mean, I, understand, I know Britain's imperial history and what it's done, and I was educated on that, but I didn't expect it to be this in, entrenched even now in terms of the way that I was approached. Even it, was, it came down... Even Chris, Christopher Wiley would say, every time he would come on the BBC, he would say things like, why haven't you got Shamir on? Like, why aren't you bringing Shamir on? He should be here. Even when Carol Cadwallader went to Andrew Marsh, he said, why am I here? Shamir Sunny should be here. And it's not that I wanted to be there, but there, I was the only voice that was actually talking about what mm -hmm. had happened because I was from within it. And Chris put it down succinctly. Chris said that if I was white, it would have been a whole different ballgame. It was a, be a whole different ballgame. And I never sort of, I never addressed it that way because I've still received so much support. But I think there's, a, like I said, there's a plethora of reasons. One, I wasn't the normal person who would come out like this. And well, two, the normal person might not have norm, come out, right? Well, exactly. <laughs> so I, I, I was, you know, I was, I'm an immigrant, I'm Pakistani, whatnot. And then I'm also, so people immediately assumed, oh, he couldn't possibly, one, be a lever, and two, he couldn't possibly be part of the conservative establishment. So immediately there was that doubt. And then also it's this, unwillingness for the political establishment to actually take action because a public inquiry would go into each and every party 
It would go into remain and leave. And there is fear on both sides, in my mm -hmm. humble opinion, of that a lot of things would come out of a public inquiry when it comes to spending. Yeah, so I it would uncover a lot on that. I mean, from your perspective, Catherine, obviously you would set up the Women's Equality Party yeah. and, and you know that in a way reflects on the lack of voice within our political system right now. Yeah. When you think about what the Women's Equality Party was set up to do, do you also see it now trying to... How can it fight this? How could the Women's Equality Party help with this struggle that we're having with essentially the corruption within the political system? Well, it's exactly because of that. I mean, I wouldn't... The word corruption... As I say, it absolutely exists, um, and it is a, a big problem. But that's also why I keep also saying it's systemic, because mm. it's kind of wider than corruption. It's also um, a lot of the stuff you're talking about with the BBC, for example, is some of it is about people who know where their paycheck is coming from, but some of it's about people who are working within a system that excludes all sorts of perspectives yeah, and where they don't... Um, that They actually don't take certain things seriously because they're also, you know, mm -hmm. the, the way that that culture is so powerful, the, they're acculturated. Yeah. Mm. Um, so it's, it's much, it goes deeper and wider. And so it's is that changing the fight. culture through? But, you know, the history of why the Women's Equality Party was set up is actually that I was watching the impact of UKIP and I was noticing that the... I was very upset about not just the Conservatives taking on the coloration of UKIP in order to try and neutralise it, but I saw Labour doing that in some ways too, you know, the British jobs for British workers, all that kind of stuff. And so I had this moment of revelation. I was also, um, you know, there had been that piece of work showing how women were not voting at all, and it was really obvious that um, it was a white men's club. And so I wanted to find a way to game the system. And I thought, actually, since the big parties think that the way to neutralise things is to steal their policies, maybe if I set up a party that is actually sort of makes things like feminism a vote winner, shows mm. that it can be, shows that um, it's if you open up politics to women and to the kinds of minority perspectives that are routinely excluded, that that's actually a vote winner. Maybe they'll try and steal our policies. And how's that been going? Well, it's been going really brilliantly. Um, but it's also, you know, I laugh because people say to that you hear all the time people saying there's no point in small parties. They can't make a difference in this system. I'm sorry, but UKIP never had more than one person directly elected to mm. parliament. And we are where we are because of UKIP and because of the yeah. weakness of the So that's interesting because one of the problems and one of the criticisms of the first past the post system is that there's these two big parties and but what you're saying is actually small parties can make a difference. We, we make we make a huge difference because in order to neutralize us the bigger parties start taking on what uh, what we are saying which is you know you've seen green politics mm. spread to other parties yeah. so it can be very benign in the case of UKIP, it was very, very damaging. Um, I'd like to go back to a really important question you asked earlier about the second referendum. Um, I call it the first referendum because so many people were excluded and it was so See, so so yeah. deeply dodgy that I that I think we're campaigning for a, for a first proper referendum here. But um, I do think that there's a real danger, even though I can uh, campaign for it, that it will go the same way as the, the dodgy one, because um, not just were 
was the Leave campaign um, so flawed and in so many ways that we know, but so was Remain. Yeah. And one of the ways in which Remain was flawed, again, it's not about corruption, it's about this systemic white man's club where what they did was they elbowed out basically all of the important perspectives they needed in that campaign. And they thought that the way to get people to vote for remain, and by the way, the word remain tells you everything you need to know, because who the hell wants to remain in, in the EU as it is? You know, you want to sort out the EU, not to stay where you are. But what they did was that they did this terrible campaign that where they kept getting big business to speak up in favour of remain. And exactly at a point where the thing that was making people angry was the, was the sense of disempowerment, the sense of these huge companies that, that felt so undemocratic. And it was like putting a sign saying, please kick me on every ballot box in the country. Now a lot of the same people who were behind the Remain campaign are behind um, people's vote, which, yeah. I su which I support. I support people's yeah, vote. Yeah, I have a but lot I, of things to I, say about that. Yeah, I mean, we could we could go into that. <laughs> One thing I would say, <laughs> and, it's and I agree, it's the same yes. voices, it's the same political culture, so and that's what. And it makes it. if it makes people like me recoil when I voted Remain, then what yeah. is it for people out there? Yes. Um, but I think this is a really interesting point. I mean, we're kind of getting a long list of all of the things that need to change right now, but certainly the narratives that we put out there in our political campaigning come from a certain set of people. Even right, the Leave campaign even though they tried to whip up this working class narrative, they were all from, you know, a group of public schools like Eton and Westminster, all from money, all worked in finance. Um, and you saw that quite similar people, people they probably went to school with on the other side. And this is certainly was my experience coming from East London and then going to Oxford is that, you know, essentially they can take one, one side or the other. Either way, they're not really affected by the outcome. Yeah, because then they dine afterwards and laugh about it. In 20 Did you see that? Yeah. They have like bets on like, yeah. you know, like Michael Gove, not Michael Gove, sorry, Matthew Elliott and Will Straw making bets about like uh, whether, whether Brexit is going to be delayed. It's just absolutely not. It, it, it's a game, right? It's always been a game. This is what I noticed when I was, you know, I would I'd be sitting in dining rooms with like Boris Johnson and like Gove and I would literally I was in it. I was in this like Etonian establishment. And they, the reason why I feel like they kind of like warmed up to me was because I was. I was different in that I grew up in Karachi in, in a military family. And so I, I, in a lot of my mannerisms, they were very colonial. And so they kind of, obviously... The, <laughs> you were these, Yeah, so these Etonians sort of loved that because I would, you know, like I'd put my napkin down properly and I would like, <laughs> I had a, like a military upbringing. So uh, noticing, like, but it allowed me to notice a lot of things where they quite genuinely, it is literally a game. And I think people always forget that. They say it, they'll say it on TV and they'll say it in public and they'll say things like, oh, it's just a game, they're just playing a game. But they, it genuinely, to them, is fun. Yeah. Political spin is fun. Saying Muslims are coming is fun. It's genuinely this, this feeling that they have of like this sort of back and forth in politics that they l quite literally jerk off to. Like, I'm not, Gosh. sorry. <laughs> no, you don't. I'm sorry. Okay. You can say what you want on this. <laughs> I don't want to imagine that. But like, um, I mean, I guess it's, you know, it's, and I saw this a little bit when I was like 18 and went to Oxford mm -hmm. and, and saw this 
this behavior and this attitude towards others like literally being you know common you know being called common people plebs and the rest of it and uh, not speaking to my friends if they came from East London mm-hmm. you know pulling their faces and ultimately these are the same people now that are in, in such, such positions in of power in politics in the media as well it's, these that, are sort of was... Etonian institutions that have been around for decades so was... I mean would you say and I often I often say this that it's not just you know what needs to change it's who needs to change so actually we yeah. need a massive takeover in terms of getting out some of these people and with that will go with that that culture will go mm. if you don't have so many people in positions of power that are from the same group of schools from the same attitudes that have you know when things go wrong has no impact on them mm. at all that's exactly right so we need to figure out the mechanisms and then and the systems and then game those systems and break down those mechanisms and and that's that's what we're trying to do you know each of our policies is really carefully targeted to doing exactly that and it's also why for example i mean equal media is one of our our big objectives because it this media environment and the horribly sort of again the exactly what you're describing is also part of the reason why um, the media reported it so badly is they literally didn't see what was right under their noses because they couldn't see it. I remember, by the way, I'm a recovering journalist um, and I remember in 2013 flying with David Cameron to the US when he was going to see Obama and it was he chartered a private plane and the lobby, I was a member of the lobby, the parliamentary lobby, there were 23 journalists on that flight. All of them were white. Um, there were only three of us who were women. Uh, the two other women there were in positions where they were assisting men who were on that flight. And though they, those men were sitting around in the plane talking, joking about Cameron's Old Etonian cir- circle. And then I started just sitting there and counting them, and they were half of them had actually been to school with the people in the mm. front of the plane. So when they're mates, you know, they're not obviously not going to whistle blow. They're obviously are going to back each other up, yeah. and they're part of that culture. So they don't even see the problem with it. They can't see the pro- they can't see they it. can't see it. It's yeah. not yeah. even about whether they challenge it. It's that they cannot see it, and we have to make these things visible. Which is again mm. one of the the amazing things mm. that you did was making visible something that people didn't see. So I might be a politician one day and I don't want to become... <laughs> Inshallah. We don't want to, you know, I don't want to be one of those people. And I guess because my upbringing already, I'm, I'm hopefully can't be one of those people. But what would you say to me in terms of, you know, the change you'd want to say see? So if I was in a position where I could change things, what is it that you would tell... Um, a politician who was willing to listen and willing to change things what are the you know couple of things that you would say do this and this urgently otherwise we are going to be stuck with this system that is alienating so many people and is ultimately incredibly corrupt um well i think um we have to try and get proportional back, uh, representation okay we're going to talk about that next um, so that's great but <laughs> but also um i really think that you as a politician Um, have to not be co-opted and it's the hardest thing possible Um, and by the way if you're campaigning against IDS I will help I'm going to come up there and help you Um, (laughs) but but um, I think that you that you know politics we all get into it to create change and then parties and party systems forget that and they end up being about maintaining or getting power rather than about what you're trying to do so I think it's about 
keeping that focus mm-hmm. on the changes that I want to see yeah. and focusing and, on that. And by the way, if you get in for Labour, please steal all of the Women's Equality Party policies because they are brilliant and they will also, every single one of them is devised to create change within, within knowing what the problems of the system are. Okay, I will get you to advise me on that, Kathleen. <laughs> um, I don't really have, I, I, I guess I can't say anything, just, I mean, you, you know better than, than anyone else. I'm just, it is, I mean, you, you're in it anyway, but it's an ext- for a brown person, it's extremely toxic. Ask anyone, ask Nasha, ask Diane Abbott, even uh, as a black woman. So I think uh, I would just say, I mean, you already know this anyway, but um, be mindful of your mental health <laughs> too. And I would say in terms of policy-wise, like one, electoral reform is, should be a key thing. And two, uh, uh, the, uh, sort of a reco- uh, igniting the conversation about regulating the press mm-hmm. and social media platforms. I think that should be the top priority because once you have a once you have a press that isn't unaccountable and once you have social media platforms that aren't unaccountable, you sort of sort out many fundamental problems within the digital age when it comes to politics and when it comes to protecting democracy. Can you get us back on so we can have a longer conversation yeah. about this? <laughs> there's there's so I mean there's electoral law, electoral funding laws mm-hmm. are, are insane uh, and they don't do any of the things they're supposed to do. Um, and also what counts, you know, even how electoral spend is calculated is, is completely wrong now. Mm. So th- there's a ton of like really practical stuff that can be done. Um, I think the mental health point is really, is really important. We've just, we've just got a new leader of our party and realised after she came to be the leader that she's the first ever BAME woman to lead a political party right. in this country. Yeah. And I'm like... At the moment where I was celebrating, I was also just terrified about what may be awaiting her. And so I, and those I of us that are fighting power, right, and you've, we've all experienced this, obviously we are targets and we have to look after ourselves. And you know, the level of trolling that's already gone, gone mm. up for me since I've been selected, but on the flip side, you know, an incredible amount of support, which mm. you know I try and focus on. But certainly we have to look after ourselves and we certainly cannot shut up right we cannot Mm. be quiet so you know i think we also need to do this thing about supporting each other right so i might be in the labor party but that doesn't mean that we can't have these supportive relationships Um, and i want to thank you both for coming on today Mm, and giving your time and absolutely i feel like we're just scratching the surface but what it what it makes me realize is that the problem is so much wider Mm then you know when you first think about how you fix the political system you might think about pr which we're going to talk about right now proportional representation but it like you say it's very much to do with the media and it's to do with representation and changing who's in parliament yeah so thank you both mm-hmm. thank you thank you john cleese here proportional representation or pr simply means that seats in the house of commons would reflect the way we vote in other words If one party gets 20% of the vote, they get 20% of the seats. And as a consequence, it would mean that Britain is governed by a parliament that reflects its people. The system that we now use for general elections, which is called First Past the Post, could hardly be further from this. Just take our current parliament. 
The Conservatives and the DUP hold a majority of seats in the House of Commons, yet just 43% of votes went to those two parties combined. 57% of us have to put up the government we didn't vote for and don't want. This is what's known as minority rule. And it gets worse. In 2015, the Conservatives got an outright majority with less than 37% of the vote. In 2005, Labour got an even bigger majority with just 35% of the vote. At the same time, millions of people who vote for other parties end up with hardly any representation at all. For example, in 2015, three parties, the Greens, the Lib Dems and UKIP, received a quarter of all votes cast and yet they ended up sharing just one and a half percent of the seats. There's no reason to put up with this system. I mean, Britain is one of only three major developed countries that still uses first-past-the-post alongside Canada and the States. It really is time that Westminster caught up with the rest of the world. Great. Let's talk about proportional representation. We've heard a few people mention it on this show in terms of a different system, a different democratic system to the first past the post system that we have right now and we're very lucky to be joined by cleaner jordan of make votes matter hi cleaner hi hi how are you hi, yeah all right all right learning a lot today um tell us about proportional representation <laughs> um well i think uh, both john cleese and various of the previous speakers have um, said quite a bit about proportional representation. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, I, I think the most important thing for me about PR is that it's the normal way that democracy is done. And um, we're in a kind of tiny minority of countries that still so abnormal. really... Yeah, yeah, completely abnormal. Um, so it's a completely archaic system, and most of the countries that still use first-past-the-post are ex-colonies. So we foisted this horrible system onto other places, and they're still trying to get rid of it, and they all are trying to get rid of it. Um, so why so hasn't it happened here? So we did have a vote, didn't yeah. we? But what was it called, so, AV+. Plus? Why didn't yeah, that so go we down? Had a referendum on the alternative vote. Unfortunately, the alternative vote is not a system of proportional representation, um, and that was a kind of compromise too far between the coalition at the time, and I think Nick Clegg himself called it a miserable little compromise. Um, compromise is actually normally a good thing, but this was kind of way past a compromise. It was offering something that nobody was really asking for. Um, it can, in fact, be less proportional than the current system. Great. And so... The thing is, is that I struggle with is what are the steps that would take us there? Is this some dramatic change that happens overnight? You know, what, what, how would this differ? How would, what would this look like? What would the proportional representation system look like as opposed to what we have right now? Sure. So in terms of how we get there, um, I think the thing to remember is that each step towards democracy is hard won. Um, over time, the trajectory is clear that we get closer to it, sometimes with some setbacks, which I think is happening a bit at the moment. But um, basically, over time, the people demand more power from those who are holding power. The reason we don't have PR yet is because those holding the power don't want to give it up. So it does take a lot of work, but we are really at the moment for proportional representation. Like, all of the polls for many years have shown that people, the majority want PR. 
um, and the majority of voters for every party want PR. So, for example, with the Labour Party, 76% of voters want PR, um, and that's reflected when we go and uh, do talks at constituency Labour parties. Um, so it's really important that we get Labour on board. We need one of the two big parties on board. And we've had 57 motions for PR raised by the constituency Labour parties so far. So that's a really encouraging sign. There's also the PLP on board, like Clive Lewis, who you were talking with earlier, is one of our allies. And um, he, he strongly supports PR, as does the shadow Charles John McDonnell. And um, there's lots of people who are pushing for this. So it's, it's a matter of time and hopefully years rather than decades what we're saying yeah so i mean i guess for people out there that have you know seen brexit essentially highlight the flaws in our democratic system how would have brexit decision making looked differently if we had proportional representation right now would it have been able to sort brexit in a different way yeah so i think it goes back even further than that in that um because of the voting system which gives a false advantage to the biggest parties um, and means that basically almost always it's only one of the two biggest parties that can get into power. The two big parties have to be really broad churches, um, and so they have to hold together these really disparate groups of people. And so the Tories, for many years, that's been the Europhiles and the Europhobes. And so effectively David Cameron was trying to hold his party together by saying, well, we'll give this question to the people, and of course they'll come back with the right answer, i.e. the answer that I want. But, of course, the people didn't because they were so pissed off with politics mm. <laughs> that they gave the establishment a good old kicking. There were also obviously lots of reasons why people voted leave. It wasn't just about kicking the establishment. But that was a part of it. And so I think we wouldn't have even had that referendum if we already had a kind of consensus-based form of politics. Um, in most democracies, um, people from different parties talk with each other, they listen to each other, they come to agreement, they come closer to agreement and they find solutions that work for the majority for the long term whereas because of the adversarial nature of our politics, as the government and Her Majesty's opposition um, you basically get these two big parties fighting each other and their main objective in life is to do the other party over, obviously that's not the only objective, but this is how the system is set up and it, it means that the whole thing is a fight rather than trying to find a way forward that works for everyone. So it would have forced the parties to speak to each other from the very beginning rather than in the last couple of weeks of the Brexit exactly, process. Exactly. And it's only been kind of when things have got to crisis point that Number 10 has kind of said, well, all right, we'll look at doing things another way. And MPs, of course, have had to force the option that they even get a meaningful say about Brexit. And the fact that they're not managing to find a way forward yet with the indicative vote is, again, indicative that they're not used to finding consensus. They're also not used to using voting systems where you can select multiple options. So you can see from the outcomes of the votes that actually they're mainly selecting their favourites rather than um, having putting second preferences, like selecting all of the ones that they would be happy with. So I really buy the argument about proportional representation, but sometimes the the issue I think about is on the one hand, um, yes, it's bad having this first past the post system when people are driving through very negative change or, you know, where they can play out their own political party drama because they have a majority. Um, but on the flip side, say if you had a very progressive government that, say, wanted to do something about climate change and wanted to do something very quickly, you could only really do that or maybe this isn't true, that, well, my thinking is, is that that's more easily done with a first-post system where you have a majority. So, you know, does having a proportional representation system whereby, you know, compromise is met, 
mean that the status quo could end up just being protected? So, um, yeah, I understand what you're saying. I think this is something people think a lot, and we're so used to this idea that First Past the Post provides strong, stable government. Um, and, of course, I think that's been completely <laughs> yeah. been destroyed now. Um, but, yeah, so, of course, if you have a majority single-party government, they can push through their legislation without much opposition. And um, so, technically, yes, you can get stuff through, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's the right policy in terms of what most people want. So you actually end up with these huge swings and zigzags of policy where one party gets in and undoes all of the work of the previous party mm-hmm. and, and vice versa. The evidence is that um, where proportional representation is used, you get much better outcomes, and this is on a whole host of indices. And so in particular about uh, climate change and environmental legislation, um, it's been really clearly shown that countries with PR take faster action against climate change and they have better uh, environmental, stronger environmental legislation. But there's all sorts of other uh, wonderful outcomes of PR, like um, more diversity in Parliament Mm. and more equal society, um, better economic outcomes. And in fact, going to war less, which seems incredible, but actually when you start to think about it, it makes a lot of sense. So there are huge impacts and it's not just about whether it's fair or unfair for one party or another. It's really about stuff that affects our entire lives. Yeah, so I've read some of that research which shows that proportional representation is really good for equality. Um, in terms of you know, what this does to the two-party system, essentially this allows for other parties to come in and have voice. And obviously there's some people that are scared of giving, say, UKIP voice in Parliament. What, what do you say to that? Yeah, and this is obviously another concern that is frequently raised. Um, what I would say is that um, everyone deserves to be represented. We live in a representative democracy, supposedly, but the reality is many people aren't being represented. Um, so, for example, uh, in the last election, I mean, it was 2015 election, I think a quarter of people voted for three parties, Greens, Lib Dems and UKIP, and they got 1.5% mm-hmm. of seats between them. So there's huge amounts of people not being represented. And the thing is, when everyone is represented and all of these different perspectives are being aired and um, uh, analysed in Parliament in the proper place, um, if they're put under scrutiny, you can show a non-factual perspective for what it is. And so someday sunlight is the best disinfectant. And I think what is really clear is that real democracy is self-correcting. So if people see that they've made a choice that they didn't like last time and they've got real democracy, they can then vote those people out next time. Um, And so it it means that, yes, you might get something you don't like and if it's really not working, you can change that. Whereas with our system, pretty much every election you get a party that has increased its vote share and lost seats or vice versa. Mm -hmm. So it's just not responsive to what the people are wanting. Thank you for that, Kleena. So I've got so many more questions, but I have to bring this to an end. And I think you just made that case so, so well. Um, thank you. Thanks, Kleena. Thank you very much, Kaiser. Good to speak with you. Thank you. So um, that has been a very, very quick hour uh, taking a bite out of this huge topic on the political change that we need to see. I've spent many years working on income and wealth inequalities, economic inequality. 
And I think what Brexit really showed to me is the power inequalities and the representative inequalities that we have in society today. And there is just so much work that needs to be done to address the lack of voice that people have in our system. But what we have learned today is that there are options. It doesn't have to be this way. So let's come together and let's fight for change. You've been listening to a FUBAR Radio podcast. For more information, go to FUBARradio.com.